and welcome to another episode of the Emeroid Digest podcast. Uh, I am your host, Chumo Bineme. I am a PGY5 fellow at uh, Emory's GI uh, Fellowship. I have with me here my co-host, uh, Dr. Brown, who is the Grady GI Fellowship Site Director. Yes, um, and um, man, we we have a great episode for you today. Uh, we're going to be discussing the ACG clinical guidelines entitled Clinical Use of Esophageal Physiologic Testing. And to do so, we have one of the lead authors, Dr. Prakash uh, Gowali. Uh, Jason, what did you take away from this uh, this episode? A couple of things. First of all, um, what an excellent educator he is. Um, the way that he's able to break down complex topics, the way that he's able to show a progression, sort of a logical and systematic fashion, um, shows you that he's a consummate educator and I can take a lot of cues from him when I present material. And in fact, I, I give your GI Fellowship core curriculum lecture on the same topic. And, um, and the way he structures things has me thinking for how I wanna revamp as I do every year um, my presentation. Um, his comments on mentorship, obviously somebody that has a lot of experience um, on both sides of the table in this area and, and one of the best sort of ways that he's laid out both sides of that role. Um, so I think that's important for our listeners of, of really of all ages and training stations. Um, and, and finally, uh, his field, his subspecialty within GI is... is is very tech heavy, very procedure heavy, very data heavy, but you'll hear him throughout the podcast talk about the primacy of the physician patient relationship and talking to the patient. And how often do we bemoan that that's something that we lose or de-emphasize in our busy clinical practices, especially in a procedural field like this. And so I think it's a nice reminder for our listeners of all GI subspecialties uh, that, you know, the patient is why we're here and the patient is guiding um, your sort of diagnostic schema. And he emphasizes that point quite a bit. And who better than to hear that from than somebody who has really helped bring about this field and is a leader, thought leader in this field, um, telling you, hey, listen to your patient before you get into some of this heavier stuff. I couldn't have said it any better myself. And with that, let's get to the episode. Hello and welcome. I have a very esteemed guest here, uh, Dr. Prakash Gowali. Uh, he needs really no introduction, but is absolutely entitled to one. Uh, so Dr. Prakash Gowali is currently an academic gastroenterologist at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. Uh, where he wears many hats. He is a professor of medicine, uh, the director of the Neurogastroenterology and Motility Program, and the program director of the Gastroenterology Fellowship Training Program at WashU. Uh, his academic interests include um, esophageal motility, gastroesophageal reflux disease, and functional GI disorders. Uh, he is involved in the motility testing uh, using high res manometry, esophageal ambulatory pH testing. Uh, and uh, endoscopic functional lumen imaging probe, or FLIP. Uh, he's involved in a ton of research projects, 
uh, associated with neurogastroenterology and motility, published over 250 original articles, invited reviews, and book chapters. And in addition to all this, uh, the timing for this episode is really auspicious because, you know, just literally one week ago to the day, uh, Dr. Gowali gave a really excellent talk to the whole GI program at Emory on, um, you know, GERD and a practical approach to the diagnosis. So, um, Dr. Gowali, we are really, really happy to have you on the show. Thank you so much. And I'm, I'm delighted and honored to be part of this podcast. Absolutely. Um, so I'll kick it to Jason now that to, to start it off. Yeah, you know, we, we like to interview role models that dedicate their careers to education and mentorship. Um, and that's sort of one of the themes that I have in my mind as junior faculty as a goal for this podcast. Those twin goals we think are so important for moving our, our field forward and giving it a future. In the realm of education, you've been active um, in the medical trainee space as well as continuing medical education for practicing physicians, sort of pushing our practice collectively down the field and into the future. Um, first of all, can you tell us a little bit about your course within GI? How'd you get from medical trainee, medical school to GI fellow to where you are now? What did that look like for you? Well, uh, a lot of good luck and a lot of moves. Uh, I started my medical career uh, going to medical school in India. I'm originally from Nepal, and uh, I, I went to medical school in India. I completed my training there and wasn't quite satisfied. Um, wanted to explore medicine in other parts of the world. And uh, in, in South Asia, uh, training in the United Kingdom is, is uh, quite important people and uh, kept in very high regard. So I wanted to get to the UK. And so I did. After, uh, after a couple years after I finished my training, I did some rotating, um, uh, uh, what we call senior house officerships. It's like residency um, in uh, internal medicine with the aim of getting to a GI unit. Uh, but competition was stiff. They had a tiered system uh, where they favored um, European graduates over graduates from um, other parts of the world. So I never managed to do that. Somewhere along the way, as I was uh, training and working after I finished my training, I, I happened to work with somebody from St. Louis. And uh, we kept in touch. And uh, it so happened that uh, when I wasn't getting what I wanted in the UK, uh, I was invited to come and interview at Washington University. How neat. Yeah, I was offered a position. I haven't left. Um, the other part of luck or serendipity is that my mentor, Ray Klaus, happened to be in the process of developing high-resolution manometry around the time that I arrived here at wow. Washington University. So mm -hmm. that is pure serendipity and luck. And uh, of course, uh, I started working with him right from the get-go and uh, continued his legacy um, as I uh, joined faculty. And unfortunately, as you might know, he passed away uh, about 15 years ago. And I've been fortunate enough to, to uh, remain at Washington University and continue doing some of the things that he was doing prior to his passing. That's really, really wonderful. What a neat story. Um, where where did it click for you, GI? Because, um, you know, we, we have a range of folks that, that listen to this, and some are trying to discern what their clinical personality is and among many different fields. And 
you said you'd sort of had an eye to work towards getting into a GI unit. Where did that click for you? So um, my interests have always been uh, in the field of patient interaction on the one hand and uh, gadgets or tools to make diagnoses or to facilitate explanation of patient symptoms on the other. And as I looked around the different specialties, there were very few specialties where the patient's story still mattered. And you had new technology coming out, right? So uh, if you think about it, cardiology, uh, you have to rely on tests. The, the patient's story is not always indicative of what might be happening. Pulmonology, you know they order CT scans before they talk to patients. Right? <laughs> the, the, the other close specialties that uh, really required patient interaction with dermatology, rheumatology, I wasn't quite interested in those. So um, GI was a natural attraction. And within uh, gastroenterology, the luminal gut, you know, new things were happening in the foregut. Um, uh, obviously, high-res manometry in the 90s was only available at Washington University. Yeah. So it was an exciting time to be at WashU, and I gravitated towards the foregut and the luminal gut for those reasons. Obviously, um, you know, mentorship and influence uh, of one's mentor uh, is important in that area. But I, I, I think I stuck to my core interests in that I wanted to have a specialty where I needed to keep talking or communicating with the patient, uh, getting their story. I'm a very people person. And then uh, using uh, gadgets and new technology to try and explain their symptoms. And that's been the theme of my, of my uh, um, clinical practice as well as research throughout my career. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. I, I think it's really nice for folks who are in their development, trying to figure out their path, hear the stories of others and the way that you've laid that out and, and keeping the patient story central is just a critical thing to get across to, to folks training today and something that we're increasingly losing. So thank you so much for bringing that in. Um, what would be your advice to trainees or junior faculty who want to get involved with national committees and work groups and, and write guidelines like these. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey? So we, we heard about how you gravitated towards GI and the foregut, foregut, pardon me. How did you then go to becoming, helping form this field, be a leader in this field and, and work with these groups that are, that are really instructing us in these developing areas? So I, I think it really boils down to uh, who you want to be. Um, uh, as part of your career. And it's, it's important to dream big, but within, within your capabilities, within reason, right? So um, my mentor always said that if you have thoughts, you have to write, you have to publish, otherwise nobody knows what you're thinking about. Nobody knows your thoughts. Yeah. And if you have clinical questions that you encounter, those are usually the best questions for clinical research studies. So we started, I started out with some of those concepts, obviously under mentorship initially. So we were, we were looking towards evaluating new technology. So uh, wireless pH monitoring, those were some of my early papers that, that had um, widespread um, 
uh, I, I guess, attention or notice from others. Yeah. But we, we, we demonstrated that uh, uh, prolonging recording time increased the number of symptoms that were available for reflux symptom association and increased the yield of diagnosis of reflux disease. And that was published in the early 2000s. Um, you know, and, and along the way, uh, I was, uh, I was uh, kind of developing these questions and trying to answer them with data that we have or were collecting at Washington University. The other good piece of advice that I got from my mentors, uh, my mentor is that you got to collect data on an ongoing basis. So we were we were using questionnaires to assess esophageal symptoms in every patient that we did any kind of testing on, so that later on you could go back and look at the, that data, maybe re-administer these questionnaires after a period of time to look at outcomes and things like that. So it, it started out with developing these clinical questions that I thought were relevant, um, developing research projects around these questions, um, getting them to completion, and trying to get them published. Many, many rejections along the way. And um, it, it took a long time before people um, started uh, noticing the, the theme in some of our papers. And once once you publish and once people read um, read your publications, um, you get invited to come and talk about your research yeah. at national meetings. And when you start talking about your research and you, you, you demonstrate how your impression or your ideas fit into the bigger whole, that's when you get invited to participate in, in these bigger committees, um, the, the um, you know, Rome committees and the Lyon committees where your thoughts are part of a bigger puzzle or a bigger whole that, uh, that you, can, you can add a little piece to the bigger equation uh, on how um, uh, conditions are investigated or managed. So that, that's, that's where uh, you, you start. You start with the simple question and, and a bigger goal of wanting to become a thought leader in your field. So I, my advice uh, in answer to your question, my advice to people starting out would be to decide if you are someone who wants to um, get your thoughts across to the practicing gastroenterologists or the researchers around. And if you have if you have ideas, if you have questions that you want answered, look through the literature and see if they have been answered and see what aspects of those questions don't have full answers. And try to design studies or clinical research projects that might be able to answer those questions. And that's where you start. You can keep doing those, you'll get noticed. It's a incredibly powerful, I think, piece of advice. And I, I really liked how you showed the progression of the genesis of the researcher to somebody who's, as you put it, adding a, a piece to the puzzle um, nationally or internationally. So thank you for, for the way that you, you laid that out for us. Um, one of the themes that we explore, at least in the first half of most of our podcasts, is the one of mentorship. Um, as somebody who has been on both sides of that fence and has advised people, now um, as, as part of your role in fellowship director. What do you think it's, is important when, when someone is searching for a mentor and the, the other side of that, what should prospective mentees bring to the table? 
So um, th that's that's a very important element of mentee-mentor relationships. The the process generally starts with the mentee wanting a mentor and the mentor making themselves available. Um, so both parties have to be interested in that relationship. And in the end, both parties benefit from that relationship. There is absolutely no doubt that I have had enormous benefits to my career from the mentees that I have worked with. Now, um, the, the mentee needs to have some kind of an idea as to what they are wanting out of that relationship. Where do they want to go uh, or what do they want to benefit from that relationship? And there, there are many types of mentee-mentor relationships or situations. Sometimes you just need a sponsor, somebody who opens the door uh, to um, uh, an area that the mentee does not have direct access to. Um, and in other instances, um, the mentee needs a research mentor, so for a limited um, element of their careers. Others need a mentor who is a, a broader uh, leader or a broader person, a person who provides broader guidance to their career. And that may include not just research mentorship and sponsorship, but also career guidance. Um, somebody who is able to tell them very objectively um, what their uh, best options are, understanding their goals, understanding the mentee's goals. So um, the mentee needs to decide what kind of relationship they want and the mentor needs to understand what the mentee wants and try to fulfill their role or tell them that maybe they're not the right person to fulfill that role. The, the mentor should be loyal to the mentee in that sometimes the advice that the mentor provides to the mentee may not be in the best interest of the institution that the mentor belongs to, if they belong to the same institution. You have to be willing to separate the institutional interests from the individual's interests. Now, what does the mentee bring to the table? The mentee brings fresh thoughts. The mentee brings in a willingness to accept criticism, a willingness to work and learn new things a willingness to multitask because this is something added on to their day-to-day um, -day activity or the, the, their normal um, uh, whatever they are assigned to do during that period of time. Um, the mentee can bring um, a work ethic that will advance whatever the, the mutual project might be. In time, the mentee-mentor relationship transitions into a collaborative relationship. So I have worked together with, with some of my mentors as friends now for years and years and years. So one of my mentors is Daniel Sifram. Um, at, uh, uh, he was, used to be in Leuven. Uh, recently, he's been in London um, at the Queen Mary. But I met him for the first time in 1998 when I was looking to learn about this new weird technique called impedance that only Daniel Sifram was doing in Belgium. So I went and did an elective with him, 1998. He's been my mentor ever since, and we've wow. written 
I guess in the last year we wrote three papers together, so we we, we still collaborate. You can see how these um, relationships can be very rich and long lasting. Once in a while, the relationship may not work, and you have to be willing to uh, address that fact in a in a very mature fashion, um, and uh, you know break a mentee mentor relationship when the relationship is not working out at both ends. So it is it is a long term relationship, and it can be very fruitful. It can lead you to a great career. Outstanding advice. I mean, I, I want to play that clip for a lot of the medical students, residents, and fellow. I mean, that is concise and lays it out perfectly. Um, Chuma, I know I had some other questions, but I, I know we're, we're already going long in my sort of assigned segment. Do, I, do I have time for one more? Or do you want to get into the guidelines? No, no, you have to ask another one because, you know, usually I think of these these episodes as, you know, the guidelines being the meat of the, uh, the episode, but uh, I'm... I'm having a, a great time listening, so just please go on. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm getting a ton out of this, so I want to take our our listeners along with us. So, n- not to get off too off topic, but but your program director for the WashU um, GI Fellowship, and as we consider the shifting sands of education, board certification, ACGME program requirements, and the like, where where do you think all of this is heading? Programs and trainees, they both have to serve a lot of masters. Um, do you do you see more consolidation or coordination among these governing entities? Will we ever have something of a common GI core curriculum? I know for passing boards, we have the the blueprint for the certification exam, but but aside from some um, different societal educational tools that we have, we don't have sort of a true common core GI curriculum in any great depth across all subspecialties and general GI topics. Is there a future for that? Uh, I don't know. My philosophy is a little different from from uh, this uh, guidance from above kind of method that we've been trying to establish and not doing a very good job about it. Yeah. Um, just think back to what you learned in high school before you went to college. You only needed some of what you learned and yeah. retained some of what you learned. What you learned in college and went to medical school didn't need much of it, much of uh, what you learned, but some you really did. You're speaking about language here. Think of what you learned in medical school and went to residency and so on and so forth. Yeah, I think that we should be uh, training people to become who they want to be. Um, and so the person who benefits the most from fellowship training, for instance, is the person who knows what they want to do with their life mm. after they finish fellowship. And so the whole process of mentorship and, and guiding people into careers should really be focusing on getting the mentee to think as to why they got into medicine in the first place, why they got where they went to medical school in the first place. What do they want to achieve out of training? And we should be providing them tools during fellowship or during any aspect of uh, you know postgraduate training, to to acquire tools that they will actually use when they finish their training. So there has to be some common um, 
skill that they learn, some common set of uh, knowledge that they acquire. And in GI, we, it's very clear what that common set is, and that is managing the uh, luminal patient, the liver patient, the biliary patient, and learning how to do endoscopy. That is our common element, right? But beyond that, GI is a is a is five or six different fields under the same umbrella, yeah. and so you can't be a master of everything. And we really should be gearing uh, fellows training during um, the three years of fellowship towards what they need. So the person who needs to learn neurogastroenterology needs to know things that are quite different for the person who wants to become an IBD expert. Mm. I think we're moving in that direction to a slight degree with these uh, post-GI fellowship, additional fellowships. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, if that can be incorporated into the core training, that will be more beneficial to the individual. So in other words, a, a breaking down or desegregation of the, of the curriculum rather than consolidation. Um, so maybe I'm an outlier in thinking that way, but uh, I think that would be to the most advantage of people we train because just think about it. They're in their 30s by the time they finish. We're yeah. in medicine mature late anyway. And so at the end of three years of fellowship, you still aren't who you want to be. You still yeah. need more training. That's a, that's a long, long time to train. And that's not to speak of of those of us who want to go into academics, write papers, study data in a rigorous fashion. I mean, you acquire some of those skills throughout as a strand during medical education, but in a real consolidated, concerted way, either on the job training or an advanced degree, uh, yeah. to your point. So, well, that's okay. That's perspective. All right, Chuma. We're cutting in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we're getting to the guidelines now. Um, that was also that was that was actually phenomenal. I am. Um, I almost feel bad for, for cutting you guys short there. Um, okay, so we're gonna we're gonna switch gears here totally uh, and talk a little bit about uh, these ACG guidelines, um, specifically clinical use of you know esophageal physiologic testing. Um, so I guess I just want to say from the outset, I really enjoyed these, not just because I have a special interest in motility, but I really like how um, clinically focused they were. Um, but I guess before we get into the meat of it, I, I'm curious, I guess, if you could just tell, I guess, our listeners, you know, why did you guys choose to write these guidelines when you did? Like, what what prompted it? Well, we were asked uh, by the Clinical Practice Committee of the uh, American College of Gastroenterology to come up with, with uh, uh, information that would be useful to readers uh, who might be managing esophageal symptoms. And um, we we were uh, we were commissioned as part of three different guidelines. Um, one was on reflux disease, which just got published this year. Another one was on achalasia, and then uh, we were told the the third guideline could be on how to work up a patient. And so when we brainstormed a little bit, um, a guideline on the physiologic tests themselves, the tests that we use. Um, or the processes that we, we use to come to a diagnosis would uh, better uh, explain how to move the patient through these different tests and uh, would provide the reader with some ideas to the performance characteristics of each of these different things that we do in, in coming to a diagnosis. So that's what started the whole thing. And then we decided 
you can actually break down esophageal symptoms into perceptive and transit, so perceptive and obstructive. And the perceptive symptoms can be typical, as in you think reflux um, as a, a leading possibility when it's typical, or atypical when reflux may not be the leading possibility, even though it needs to be excluded. So that's how the three pathways came into, into the equation. And then we took uh, the patient down each of the steps uh, through each pathway. And, and that explains the different sections in that guideline. That, that is perfect. That's a great segue. So I, I wanted to talk about, you know, I think for the rest of the podcast, we're really going to talk about these three different pathways and uh, hopefully have you guide us sort of how you work patients up through these. Um, so I guess in my head, it, there really is kind of like the obstructive pathway, the patient who you think has sort of GERD or suspected GERD, and then there's kind of like atypical or extraesophageal symptoms. Um, so I, I wonder, you know, for these patients who come down the obstructive pathway, how do these patients present? And like, how do you, how do you talk to them in clinic? Um, so the obstructive symptoms tend to be uh, when the patient says they have trouble in getting food down in some fashion. Um, and, and the cleanest of that symptom is dysphagia, right? So where a patient says food sticks in the middle of the chest or I can't get food from my mouth into the, into the esophagus. So that's the cleanest of the transit symptoms. And indeed, that's an alarm symptom that makes you want to look for a structural mechanism for the symptoms, because structural mechanisms um, are far, far more frequent than motor or other mucosal functional mechanisms for that particular symptom. Now, a, a transit symptom like dysphagia can be associated with what's called bland regurgitation, the regurgitation a food that never made it to the stomach, so it tastes just like the food that the person ate. In contrast to regurgitation from the stomach in reflux disease, where it's acidic or sour or bitter. So uh, dysphagia and bland regurgitation, sometimes chest pain can be a surrogate for dysphagia. If the patient says, I have pain while I'm eating. So instead of saying, I feel the food stuck and that hurts me, the patient might say, I have pain while I'm eating. So chest pain can sometimes be a surrogate for that. And then uh, consequences of, of uh, food not getting through. So one of the consequences can be nutritional. The patient may have less food that goes through or may eat less because of the symptom and they may lose weight. If food doesn't make it through the esophagus, it sits there when the patient lays down, some of it may come back and they may aspirate. So they may have lung symptoms, they may have pneumonias, they may have respiratory infection. So that's the setup for the obstructive side, um, the obstru obstructive pathway for esophageal symptoms. And when, when uh, these patients are being evaluated, in the clinician's mind, you, you have to be thinking, is this a sinister etiology? Meaning, is, is this something that can be dangerous to the patient? So what could be dangerous? A cancer or a profound motility disorder. That could be a, a danger for the patient. So you need to expedite or start the investigation right away. And that's why dysphagia is an alarm symptom. Sometimes the etiology is benign, but the symptom is profound. 
So if the person has a tight structure or a tight fundoplication or eosinophilic esophagitis, they're not going to die from that, but it can affect their nutrition and their day-to-day -day eating to a significant degree, and the patient's quite distressed. In rare instances, dysphagia or the obstructive pathway can be a, an annoyance, some mild dysphagia, intermittent dysphagia, um, a, a subtle ring associated with reflux disease, a subtle stricture that can be easily managed. So in, in the clinician's mind, those three possibilities and where the patient fits within that sinister profound or annoyance level determines the speed by which um, investigation needs to be undertaken. That was a, that was that was fantastic. Um, so I guess um, you know I, I really now I guess now that we're down this obstructive pathway, I think um, I think we should just talk about some of the specific physiologic tests that you employ. Um, I want to first maybe talk about endoscopy because I feel like as gastroenterologists we all do endoscopy. So I guess in a patient who you're worried about having obstructive symptoms, um, what are you looking for on endoscopy or uh, how does it help you? So endoscopy is the first test in that setting. So we usually don't do other tests before endoscopy. And um, obviously endoscopy has very high specificity in that if you see something in there uh, in somebody with uh, significant dysphagia and weight loss, that is likely the mechanism of the dysphagia. You can see mucosal abnormalities, you can see strictures, you can see um, uh, mucosal changes in eosinophilic esophagitis, but endoscopy does not have great performance characteristics in diagnosing motor disorders that are not profound. So early achalasia you don't pick up. In general, you only pick up uh, about 40, 50% of, of profound motor disorders. So a normal endoscopy does not rule out uh, a significant motor disorder. It does rule out a careful endoscopy does rule out a cancer, for instance, a, a mucosal cancer, because you're most often going to see irregularities if you take um, some time to look at the esophagus. It does not rule out eosinophilic esophagitis. So the esophagus needs to be biopsied, even if it looks normal, in the setting of esophageal type dysphagia. We may also not be great at identifying subtle strictures, subtle narrowings, the endoscope has a diameter of about seven to eight millimeters. Um, and so anything, any lumen larger than that, you just, you know, blow right through. And if you don't take time to, to get some perspective on how big the lumen is, you may miss any structure that's larger than a centimeter or 1.2 centimeters in size. So endoscopy, good specificity, not the best sensitivity, especially for reflux or, or esophagitis, but it is the starting point. And these days it has value over barium because you can biopsy and diagnose eosinophilic esophagitis, even though barium studies do have a important role in looking for subtle strictures and, and evaluating esophageal emptying in certain circumstances. Yeah, yeah, I definitely. So I mean, I, you know, you guys mentioned a lot in the paper about barium esophagram. Um, so I think uh, sometimes it's kind of tough because it, it doesn't seem like it's the most standardized tool. You know, some people do it upright position. There, they measure the column at one minute instead of five minutes. I guess how do you um, how do you use barium esophagram and how do you tailor it towards uh, what patients specifically need? I think that tailoring is the most important part. Why are you getting a barium? That determines how you do the barium. If you're, if you're doing a barium for 
anatomy. So esophagogastric junction anatomy, a single or double column barium study, not necessarily upright barium study, is good enough. And sometimes you need to get the patient to lay down um, with uh, valsalva or some pressure in the abdomen to bring out a paraesophageal hernia or other anatomic elements. If the indication is to look for a subtle stricture, a liquid barium is typically not enough. And you may have to combine that with um, a 13 millimeter barium pill or a marshmallow dipped in barium or some solid bolus that is visible um, on the x-ray screen. If you're assessing esophageal emptying, so, and, and that is important if you're assessing dysphagia and are concerned about a motor disorder, or you're assessing symptoms after treatment of a motor disorder, like treatment of achalasia, then a timed upright barium is the right test. So in that setting, you give the patient between 200 and 240 ml of uh, barium um, and stand the person up and look and see if there's a barium column at one minute and at five minutes. If the, there is no barium column at one minute, you're done esophagus empties, um, and, and uh, at least liquid barium is going to empty. Sometimes that is combined with the barium pill as well in the upright position. If liquid barium empties, you can give the person a barium pill, pill and see if that impacts. Now, if the esophagus doesn't empty at one minute, then you take films at three and five or two and five minutes. And if there is a column that is more than one or two centimeters at five minutes, that usually means that there is some problem with esophageal emptying related to some uh, abnormality at the esophageal gastric junction can be structural, uh, but can, it can also be uh, motor in that uh, relaxation of the lower sphincter may be abnormal. That was, so we're gonna keep moving right along. That was, that was great. So, um, so we're gonna jump to high resolution manometry, I guess, for this obstruction, this sort of obstructive pathway. Um, I think a lot of people who aren't in you know, GI are not as familiar with this, I guess, physiologic test. So <laughs> I guess maybe broadly speaking, um, one like, what is it? And how does it help sort of classify some of these disorders? Um, so manometry measures pressures inside hollow lumen. So that's what manometry is. And high resolution is, uh, manometry is just a, a, a advanced form of manometry where um, the recording sites within the esophagus, so it's usually through a catheter placed um, through the nose uh, into the esophagus so that the tip is eventually in the stomach. So the recording sites are very close together such that uh, the pressure data acquired from that uh, catheter can be simulated using a computer. Um, and uh, the computer software programs can fill in best fit data between the recorded pressure measurements and create a seamless uh, pressure trace. Um, uh, the computer also adds color based on amplitude so that higher pressures get a brighter color, like within the yellow and red spectrum, and uh, lower pressures get lower uh, blue spectrum colors. So uh, once those colors are assigned, you can look at the pressure trace as if you're flying over it like a weather map, just like you can see the weather front advancing um, on, on the weather maps, that's essentially what you're seeing um, with high resolution manometry. You can see the pressure impression of um, peristalsis, for instance. But 
remember, peristalsis is assumed. What all you're measuring is pressure. So that's the part about manometry that you have to be careful about. That's why manometry is typically not done before you have ruled out a structural mechanism for uh, uh, dysphagia, because a structural, a tight structural process, like a tight cancer, a tight fundoplication, can look identical to achalasia, where the sphincter is not relaxing at the lower end of the esophagus, because all you're measuring is pressure. And that's where some of the problems arise with manometry, where people are too reliant on metrics um, and uh, not giving enough importance to the patient's story and the situation. So uh, the, the nice thing about high-resolution manometry is you can look at the, the image. We call these Klaus plots in honor of Ray Klaus, who developed them. You can look at the Klaus plot and recognize patterns of different uh, disorders of the esophagus, motor disorders of the esophagus. The, the most important diagnosis you can make with manometry is esophageal obstruction, outflow obstruction from a motor mechanism or muscle-related mechanism. And the most profound of those is achalasia, where the sphincter at the bottom end of the esophagus doesn't relax. So even though it's a muscle issue, that condition manifests as an obstruction because the sphincter doesn't open up to allow food to pass into the stomach. So even when that condition, achalasia, is not evident on the manometry study, we try very hard to make sure there is, whether there is obstruction or no obstruction by using provocative maneuvers, by giving the person a, a large volume of liquid to swallow, to see if when you increase the bolus size, if, if an obstructive element gets becomes evident, or give the patient a solid bolus, or even a meal sometimes, to try and bring out obstruction. And why is that important? Because if you find obstruction, that is one motor movement disorder that we can actually treat. So if the sphincter doesn't relax, you can cut or uh, tear open the sphincter to allow that obstruction to be relieved. So we try very hard with manometry, especially in the present day, to, to, to identify these obstructive motor disorders. And so getting to that point takes a little bit of work. So first you have to make sure there's nothing structural, not, no, no cancer, no tightness, no stricture by doing an endoscopy and or barium. And then you get to manometry, because now you know there is nothing structural. Whatever you see is probably a muscle-related issue, very likely. And, um, and if you find an obstruction, then doing something to that muscle might improve the patient's symptom. So that's how you need to plan investigation of an obstructive symptom. That's excellent. So, you know, I think when these, when, when the, uh, this guideline on the esophageal physiologic testing came out, I think we were still in Chicago classification 3.0 era, if I'm correct. So I think 4.0 came out afterwards. So I guess I'm, I'm you know, we could talk about a lot of things here, but I, maybe just why was, what did I guess 4.0 Chicago classification add, or, you know, why was it important to, to make a new iteration of, of the, like those those guidelines? Well, uh, 3.0 had some issues because um, of some of the metrics that were uh, in the 3.0 Chicago classification, there was over-diagnosis of this uh, incomplete entity called esophageal gastric junction outflow obstruction. So that, that, that is an entity where um, 
the movement in the middle part of the esophagus, the esophageal body peristalsis is normal, but it looks like there might be obstruction at the level of the sphincter or the esophagogastric junction. Indeed, in a small proportion of patients, that is real obstruction. But in a big proportion of patients, that might be an artifact or related to something else going on in the esophagus. So there was both overdiagnosis of, uh, of obstruction, and indeed there was underdiagnosis of obstruction in some patients where movement was so decreased, there was absent contractility, and the pressures uh, that uh, uh, in indicated obstruction could not be reached because the esophageal muscle was so weak. So there was both overdiagnosis and underdiagnosis of obstruction. Remember what we said about obstruction. When you find obstruction, you can treat it. So identifying, finding obstruction or making that um, identification more precise was important. And Chicago 4.0 does that. So that's on the one hand. On the other hand, Chicago 3.0 had rather loose criteria for uh, making a diagnosis of, um, to make it simple, weak peristalsis. That's called ineffective esophageal motility. And um, the criteria that the Chicago 3.0 uh, classification utilized overlapped with what we see in healthy asymptomatic individuals. And for that reason, those criteria needed to be tightened up so that the overlap with healthy individuals who have no symptoms was much lower. And so the ineffective esophageal motility criteria were made more stringent. And then finally, spastic disorders where the esophagus contracts vigorously, some of those conditions can also be seen in situations where you don't need to do anything about it, that the, those spastic disorders are not the mechanism for symptoms, they are just an innocent bystander. And to make the criteria more relevant to the patient's symptoms, Chicago 4.0 now requires um, uh, symptoms that can be explained by the disorder as part of the definition. So for the spastic disorders, patients need to have dysphagia and or chest pain, some of the obstructive symptoms that we talked about earlier, and also needs the pattern confirmed in some settings by an alternate test like a barium study or uh, one of these newer tests, functional lumen imaging probe. Now, I will tell you a little secret. Chicago 4.0 was going on the criteria was being developed by some of the same people who wrote the guideline. So the, the Chicago 4.0 and the ACG guidelines actually work together very well because we have described some of these provocative maneuvers and some of the Chicago 4.0 elements in the guideline already, even though the 4.0 was not out when the guideline came out. And, and you, I, we didn't name them, but, you know, you mentioned, you know, the uh, multiple rapid swallows and, you know, uh, rapid drink challenge. Um, all that to say that we can't go into everything in these guidelines. We have to keep moving along, but people really should read them because you guys really do just really nicely and simply lay out, you know, what these tests are for and, and how it's helpful. Um, so just to confuse things more, can we can we end the obstructive pathway with flip? Can we can yeah. we do that? Just talking yeah. about you know how it's helpful, especially for some of these you know EDJ output yeah. obstruction patients. Or yeah, absolutely. And flip is a new new technology that looks at the biophysical properties of hollow lumen. Again, if you think about obstruction in the esophagus. Uh, you know, identifying obstruction is an important element of evaluating uh, patients with esophageal symptoms. So FLIP 
complements manometry uh, in identifying true obstruction or refuting the presence of true obstruction when manometry is inconclusive or when manometry uh, findings need to be confirmed. Like we said earlier, some of the uh, esophageal diagnoses, especially this uh, heterogeneous entity called EGJ outflow obstruction needs to be confirmed by an alternate test. And FLIP is a very good adjudicator. So how FLIP works is you have a catheter that has a balloon around it, um, and it has impedance electrodes, uh, electrodes within the catheter. So a tiny current is passed through those electrodes, and the resistance to flow of current is calculated. Now, um, using Ohm's law, if you know the conductance of the liquid and the volume of liquid within that uh, distending balloon, um, you can calculate cross-sectional area across uh, those two electrodes. And indeed, that's what FLIP does. It measures cross-sectional area, provides a reading of cross-sectional area. And the relationship between the distending pressure and the cross-sectional area gives uh, a, a new metric known as the stensibility index, which will be very low if the sphincter cannot open adequately and will be normal or high if the sphincter opens. So it is a good adjudicator that may be more sensitive than manometry because it detects not just motor mechanisms of obstruction at the esophagogastric junction, but also structural mechanisms, subtle strictures. You can measure diameter very accurately, and that can give you the opening size of the esophagogastric junction. So if the opening uh, size is narrow, but the, the sphincter is distensible, that means the person has a stricture and not really a motor disorder. So it's a good adjudicator um, of uh, abnormalities, uh, maybe with a little more sensitivity. There's still other kinks to be sorted out with exactly what the FLIP does um, and how uh, uh, FLIP findings need to be interpreted, but it is a valuable tool um, as a uh, complementary test in evaluation of obstructive symptoms. Yeah. W one question I had, I guess, before we jump to the GERD sort of pathway is, I think, you know, the article mentioned, well, one, I think with high-res manometry, like a lot of us are familiar with the way that it subtypes achalasia, type 1, type 2, type 3. Um, there was a mention in the paper saying that FLIP has like a, a sort of a different way to subtype achalasia. I was curious, could you go into that a little bit more or? Yes. Uh, now, um, with FLIP, remember, we are distending a balloon in the esophagus. And the esophageal response to that balloon can also be characterized. And the esophageal response in the esophageal body. A normal esophagus will try to contract to push that balloon into the stomach, um, even if the patient is asleep. And that's called secondary peristalsis, in contrast to primary peristalsis that we swallow, that we start when we swallow. So that secondary peristalsis can be characterized using FLIP. So if there is an obstructive process at the esophagogastric junction. You, know, you can further characterize that into obstruction without any contractile response in the esophageal body, which would be similar to um, uh, achalasia type 1 or type 2 on high-resolution manometry. Or you could have spastic or prolonged contractions or some discoordinated contractility in the esophageal body on the flip, which may correspond to type 3 achalasia or EGJ outflow obstruction. So you can break achalasia 
our obstructive syndromes down into those without contractility and those with contractility in the esophageal body. But you have to take that with a pinch of salt because what you're evaluating uh, with FLIP is secondary peristalsis. And the secondary peristaltic response may not be the same as primary peristaltic response. So to my mind, current management of achalasia still relies on the primary peristaltic patterns. And that's what defines how we treat achalasia how we treat the different subtypes of achalasia. So it is quite possible that somebody with a spastic response to primary peristalsis may manifest a lack of response to secondary peristalsis, and we don't know that. So, you, uh, you know, you still need the manometric uh, Chicago uh, classification of achalasia to help manage patients, even though uh, you may have flip data, at least to my mind. That's great. Yeah, no, that's really helpful. Um, okay, we have to get to GERD. <clears throat> um, <laughs> so, uh, all right. Uh, th this this whole, I guess, section of the, the guidelines were really eye-opening uh, for me. And I think the talk you gave, I wish everyone could have been there for the talk you gave at, for uh, the, our Emory program because it was, it was really phenomenal. Um, so I guess we'll just start with the basics. Um, when you think about typical versus atypical symptoms, um, I guess, can you talk about each? We'll just split them up into like, you know, those two categories. And then I guess we'll run down how you think about those patients and how you evaluate them. So uh, typical symptoms are uh, the symptoms that most patients with reflux disease will complain of. And that's a burning sensation behind the breastbone. So it's called heartburn. Now, sometimes that overlaps with chest pain because some of, uh, uh, you know, why patients uh, report chest pain versus heartburn really depends on their interpretation of that sensation. So some people will call it pain, others will call it heartburn. But uh, it's a burning sensation behind the breastbone, usually after meals, usually in the post-meal phase or at night when the patient is laying down. That is the typical description of heartburn. Um, it may get better if the patient were to take something to neutralize acid, like an antacid or a glass of milk, uh, something to neutralize the acid. Sometimes it is combined with an actual sensation of something coming up, and we call that regurgitation. And like I said earlier, acid regurgitation would be when the patient feels an acidic taste uh, at the back of the throat or a sensation of something moving up the chest. Now, that part has to be differentiated from vomiting because the patient might think they're vomiting when actually it is effortless movement of content from the stomach up. So it is important when a patient says they're vomiting to make sure that they don't mean they're regurgitating uh, versus actually vomiting. Actual vomiting requires salivation, contraction of the abdominal muscles, and there is some force associated with it, while regurgitation is effortless. So um, heartburn, acid regurgitation, and maybe chest pain may be in that category of perceptive typical reflux symptoms. When it comes to atypical symptoms, um, what really needs to be differentiated is the patient with isolated atypical symptoms. Now, if somebody has atypical symptoms in conjunction with the typical symptoms, then the typical symptoms rule. They are, the, they are the ones that will direct what you do. But if somebody has isolated cough or isolated hoarseness at the, uh, or a pain at the back of the throat um, or nausea, so these are atypical symptoms 
that have a much lower likelihood of reflux being the mechanism than the true typical symptoms. So if you take everybody with heartburn and regurgitation, about 70% probably have reflux. The rest will have a functional mechanism. Whereas with atypical, isolated atypical symptoms, 10, maybe 15% will have true reflux. The rest will have some of the mechanism. So that is the reason why it's important to break these categories down into typical versus atypical, because how we approach them is different. Yeah, that's great. Um, you know, one thing I was kind of struck by was um, I think that the, the many definitions of GERD and uh, and how really the Lyon consensus is kind of, I guess, created an objective sort of definition of GERD. So um, let's see, maybe we can talk about when, when we talk about like unproven versus proven GERD, um, what what do you guys mean by that when you when you when you say that? So unproven versus proven GERD is is a paradigm that we use to decide how to investigate the patient with persisting esophageal symptoms. So you suspect reflux disease when somebody has these typical symptoms very often, and once in a while, or, or when patients have atypical symptoms. So when somebody has typical symptoms, the likelihood of GERD being the mechanism or reflux disease being the mechanism for their symptoms is high enough that you would start out investigating them, actually treating them. So response to treatment is actually a test for the diagnosis of GERD in those patients because if they respond, there is a good chance that what they have is true reflux disease. There are so many people with reflux disease in the world that it is not possible to test every one of them. So if they respond to the acid suppressant and they have no warning signs and they have no symptoms that would concern the investigator or the clinician that something else nefarious might be going on, then it's okay to accept that response as evidence that the person has good, but that only applies to those typical symptoms. Because atypical symptoms have a much lower prevalence of true reflux disease, then uh, it's important to investigate those patients and only treat the ones with true GERD um, with medication. So how where does proven and unproven GERD uh, fit into this? So in patients with typical reflux symptoms, if they do not respond to the acid suppressant, you, you don't know if they have reflux disease. You haven't had any evidence prior of reflux disease. So those are unproven GERD patients. So the intent of testing them is going to be to see if GERD is present, if reflux is the mechanism for their symptoms. For atypical symptoms, all of them are investigated in that fashion um, in, in terms of tr evaluating them uh, before any treatment is provided. So these are all unproven GERD. So what is proven GERD? Proven GERD is, uh, is a cohort of patients in whom some objective evidence of reflux disease exists on a test, on an objective test. The easiest of these is endoscopy showing erosive or rawness in the esophagus, erosive changes in the esophagus, or a consequence of reflux, like Barrett's esophagus, where the lining of the esophagus tries to change into a type of lining that is more resistant to acid, the stomach-type lining. That's what Barrett's esophagus is. It's a stomach or intestine-type lining, which the esophagus tries to change to, 
to become more resistant to acid in some patients who are genetically predisposed. Now, a third consequence of reflux is a narrowing, a stricture from reflux. So if those uh, elements are present on endoscopy, those patients have proven GERD. That is conclusive evidence of GERD. Well, how do we know that? Well, there are studies that show that if you were to put a catheter in the esophagus and measure acid off um, acid-suppressive medicine, and the patient not taking acid-suppressive medicines, patients with erosive esophagitis, with Barrett's esophagus, and with the stricture are going to have very high reflux burden in the esophagus, acid numbers in the esophagus, to the extent that you don't need to do that test. You know when you see these findings that that is conclusive evidence, surrogate evidence, that there is acid coming up from the stomach into the esophagus. Now, if you don't have that, then if you were to do a pH test off PPI and demonstrate high acid numbers, we have a threshold in the Lyon consensus of 6%, which is conclusive evidence for reflux disease. So if patients have met these thresholds, those are the patients with proven GERD. So how does it impact how we study them? If somebody has proven GERD and they have continuing symptoms, the objective of testing is to see if their ongoing symptoms is related to incompletely treated GERD. And so you test those patients with pH impedance while they're taking their normal reflux medicine, usually twice a day reflux medicine, with the intent of escalating their management if that pH test, pH impedance study on PPI is abnormal. How would you escalate? Well, you might send them to surgery. You might send them for a gastric bypass. You might send them for one of these newer magnetic uh, bracelets that are uh, implanted at the esophagogastric junction, the magnetic sphincter augmentation, or you might send them for an endoscopic um, incisionless fundoplication. So there are many options of escalating. So the concept of unproven and proven GERD um, really decides how best to investigate the, the patient and what the intent of investigating is in each category. That was perfect. Um, so uh, let's see. I, I, there's two different ways I want to go here um, because I, I think there's just, I feel like there's been a lot of discussion about, I guess, testing on or off PPI. Um, you know, I think maybe a common clinical scenario is the patient who maybe had, maybe they had heartburn, but also some atypical symptoms, you know, you went down the suspected GERD, so you did a PPI trial. It made symptoms maybe somewhat better, but not totally better. And once you want to do, you know, pH impedance testing off PPI to really put this, to really get objective evidence, the patients, you know, complain to you and say, I can't come off my PPI. Um, so you get in this awkward situation where is very difficult for you to to get true objective evidence of GERD, but you know you have a patient who's on a PPI. Um, I guess that this is a difficult spot. I, I wonder just how do you um, how do you how would you deal with that kind of patient, or do, do you see them a lot in your your clinic and what you, what you do? Yes, yes, there are some of them, and uh, if they say they can't come off their PPI, you've probably answered one of the questions. Uh, that you need to answer. Does this patient need to remain on PPI? And if they say they can't come off their PPI and they feel horrible off it, I think you've answered that question. Yes, they need to stay on their PPI. Now, the second part is to decide uh, why are they having ongoing symptoms? One of the potential mechanisms in that setting 
when the PPI does not completely resolve their symptoms is that they have ongoing reflux that the PPI hasn't adequately treated, number one, or if they have esophageal hypersensitivity, if they have a perceptive issue that they are feeling reflux and other esophageal events to a greater degree than the average patient. Now, you can try and sort these out using adjunctive measures. And, and, and one of the adjunctive measures that you can look for is the presence of a hiatus hernia. So if the patient has a hiatus hernia, a, a disruption in the barrier at the esophagogastric junction, the likelihood of true reflux disease is higher, right? So if you have a disrupted barrier, if they have an intact barrier, um, you can still have true reflux disease that's incompletely treated, but uh, you might also have esophageal hypersensitivity. So again, this goes back to why I went into gastroenterology. You got to go talk to the patient and try to sort that out based on the story and based on their early investigation. And that will determine how you proceed in the next step. Because remember, the aim is not just to prove what they have, but to get them better, to get them feeling better. So what I do in this setting is if I think based on my clinical impression that they have ongoing reflux that is incompletely managed, I try to maximize the acid suppressant and maybe shift them to a more potent PPI. Now, uh, there is a, a gradient of potency among PPIs. The least potent is pantoprazole. The most potent is rebeprazole. Others are in between. So you might want to get them a more potent PPI. You might try to give them a trial of a GI cocktail to see if you can improve their symptoms by giving them a topical analgesic type medicine. If they improve, then it is quite possible that they have a hypersensitivity pattern, especially if they don't have a hernia. And you might wanna try a neuromodulator or adjunctive measures like diaphragmatic breathing. If they have a hiatus hernia, then you're going to have to try and decide if their ongoing symptoms are related to an uncontrolled reflux pattern, an uncontrolled reflux pattern that might benefit from, um, from fundoplication. Unfortunately, in that situation, it, it would be a, a hard sell to send a person with a small hiatus hernia and a lot of esophageal symptoms that don't respond to a PPI to a surgeon. So you have to come up with some strategy that will allow testing off PPI to document reflux because PPIs are really good at uh, suppressing reflux and the test on PPI may be completely negative and you may have put the patient through a test that doesn't give you information. So one of the ways in which you can do that is to is to let the patient take a PPI for three or four, I mean, uh, take an H2 receptor antagonist for three or four days when they're off the PPI and just leave them off PPI for um, of H2 receptor antagonists for a day or two prior to the pH test. Let them use antacids for those two days. But, um, you know, most patients who don't respond to even BID PPI with a perceptive symptom like heartburn probably don't have reflux as a big primary mechanism for their symptom. Important to remember that because it will be doing them a disservice if you escalate their reflux to anti-reflux surgery without proving reflux in that in that setting. Absolutely. Um, I wanted to get to, I mean, I guess because we're on the topic of pH testing, um, I guess we got to talk about 24-hour catheter-based and wireless 
uh, that can get up to 96 hours, you know, which patients do you want to use each test in? And I guess, how do these tests differ from one another? So um, wireless pH monitoring uh, can record for multiple days, as you mentioned, but it has a single sensor. So you cannot detect directionality of, uh, of acid in the esophagus. If somebody were to swallow acid, uh, it, it can completely confound the results. Most patients don't do that, but that, that, is, that is a possibility. Um, a couple of downsides, it's more expensive because it needs endoscopy. Uh, there may be uh, um, data loss from the capsule falling off. But a whole lot of upsides because you can evaluate day-to-day -day variation in acid burden. So with a 24-hour study, you may be catching the patient on their best day, their worst day, or their average day. With uh, wireless pH monitoring, you have the, the possibility of, of uh, four different days, and you can, you can get a sense as to uh, what the acid pattern is and how much it varies. So these days, we take more than or equal to two days of the same pattern as being the dominant pattern. So if you have more than or equal to two days with abnormal acid burden, that usually tells you that the person probably has a, a, a true reflux pattern. Now, wireless monitoring also allows uh, better reflux symptom association for infrequent symptoms. So patients with chest pain may have one episode a day. So with a 24-hour study, you may not have enough symptoms to make that uh, reflux symptom association. The biggest advantage of, uh, of wireless pH monitoring is you can get it into the hands of people who endoscope. And there are more people who endoscope than neurogastroenterologists or people with motility labs. These days, it does not need calibration. You just have to make sure that they bring the patient to the endoscopy suite off PPI. And if they don't see conclusive evidence of reflux on uh, the endoscopy part, they can place a wireless pH monitor. And it does not take time to get that uh, equipment ready because it doesn't need calibration anymore. So, um, uh, you know, pH impedance testing, catheter-based testing requires some expertise in interpretation um, because those impedance events need to be adjudicated by an expert, whereas the acid metrics are easier to extract out of, uh, you know, with using a software program out of a pH study. So for the masses, for patients with heartburn, a perceptive symptom, wireless pH monitoring is an easy method to uh, either confirm or refute the presence of two true GERD. Now, where does pH impedance benefit? When you need to know what's happening with the actual reflux, how high is it coming? Uh, is, does the patient have a transit symptom, a regurgitation type symptom um, that you need to characterize further? Is the patient a belcher? Do you need to see the air content of these events? In those settings, a pH impedance study has value over a wireless pH study, but you need somebody who knows how to interpret. Obviously, if you're going to do a test on PPI, your only option is a catheter-based pH impedance study because you, you should not be doing pH-only studies uh, on PPI. That was that was excellent. Um, so, so, so I want to be respectful of your time. Um, there are, I had a couple uh random questions sort of here at the end and then we will wrap up uh but this has honestly been a <laughs> fantastic discussion uh on some of these physiologic tests okay question one so is there a role or 
So in patients who are going, we're down the GERD pathway um, and they're undergoing endoscopy, um, what is the role for, I guess, esophageal biopsies in patients who do not have evidence of salmon, you know, colored mucosa concerning for Barrett's esophagus? So I can tell you what those biopsies will not tell you. They will not tell you whether the person has pathologic GERD or not. Okay, so biopsies are not good evidence with just the straightforward uh, uh, metrics that are looked at under H&E staining. Only if dilated intracellular spaces are looked for, and that is best looked for with electron microscopy, although you can look for these under simple staining, unless those are looked for, unless the pathologist has expertise in that, you're not going to get enough evidence for GERD. But should you biopsy? Yes. Where should you biopsy? About five centimeters above the lower esophageal sphincter. And why should you biopsy? To rule out eosinophilic esophagitis. The likelihood of eosinophilic esophagitis is low. The yield of diagnosis is higher if the patient comes to the test off PPI. But that is the main reason to biopsy the esophagus in that setting. Obviously, the yield is higher. The symptom is dysphagia than if the symptom is heartburn, but you will pick up a few. Great. Um, another question. For, so for the, the, the Lyon consensus, um, it, it is very clear, you know, when it says there's a row that, you know, conclusive evidence for, you know, pathologic reflux. You, know, we got, you talked about the endoscopic findings, talked about, you know, acid exposure time greater than 6%. For these other, you know, once you get down to borderline or inconclusive and adjunctive supportive evidence, how do those, do you mix and match and then get conclusive evidence? Like, is it a summative thing? Like, how do you use the Leon consensus to get an objective diagnosis of GERD when you don't have, you know, that high level conclusive pathologic evidence? So if, if evidence falls uh, into a borderline category, um, uh, lower grades of esophagitis. You could say that LA grade B esophagitis is probably enough evidence to treat somebody as reflux. But if somebody has LA grade A esophagitis, which can be can overlap with healthy individuals, or if the acid exposure time is somewhere between four and six percent, that can be compatible with health with asymptomatic healthy healthy individuals. And you want to separate those patients out who don't have GERD from the people who truly have a borderline acid burden and have true GERD. Uh, an example of that category, that borderline category being too true GERD, is in the Orient, in the Far East. They, they rarely see acid exposure times of uh, 8 or 10 or 12. Most of the acid exposure time is going to be in the 6, 4, 5, 6 range, and those patients have true GERD. So how do you, how do you get there? Uh, that's when you look at that next column where it says adjunctive evidence. So if somebody with acid exposure time of 5% also has a hiatus hernia or has a hypotensive lower esophageal sphincter, then that elevates that 5% to true GERD. On the other hand, let's say somebody with um, uh, acid exposure time 4.5% or LA grade A esophagitis has no dilated intracellular spaces on biopsy, uh, has a normal baseline impedance on a pH impedance monitoring. That person, uh, the evidence sways you away from true GERD that the per that person probably does not have significant GERD. So that's how you use that those middle two uh, 
rows on the Lyon consensus diagram. That's great. That's great. Um, so I don't know. I think that. So I think the last, <laughs> the very last thing. So I had was. Um, I am sure you guys get a ton of referrals for some of these complex patients uh, who obstructive GERD, atypical. Uh, are there particular, I don't know, themes that run amongst these patients who come to you? Or, you know, are there common misconceptions that, you know, might help like a, a practicing gastroenterologist that you wish you could tell them? Yeah, there, there are a few uh, few things that uh, that patients say or patients understand that need to be corrected uh, or investigated further. Um, one is uh, patients being scared of proton pump inhibitors, and PPIs have a lot of bad press. And uh, you know, one of the primary best practice advice statements in the recent clinical practice update that we published says specifically that the clinicians should reassure their patients that PPIs are safe uh, for long-term use. In the right setting, if the patient has an acid peptic disease, the patient should be educated that the data um, that has been published talking about the ill effects of PPI are based on um, retrospective studies without context in most in instances, and the odds ratios or hazard ratios fall into the zone of bias rather than conclusive evidence of these uh, side effects or adverse effects being linked to PPI. Some actually have been refuted in better done studies over time. So that's one point. The other point to remember is in somebody with a typical reflux-like symptom who doesn't respond to PPI, the likelihood of true GERD is very low. It's less than a third. So th that person probably does not have reflux disease. Okay. The third thing is, uh, it is difficult to know what to do when a patient comes and tells you, I have GERD. What is your symptom? I have acid reflux. But to me, that does not give me enough information. It's important to dig deeper and ask them, so what do you actually feel? And you'll be surprised that, as to what the patients say. Not all of those patients who say, I have acid reflux, have heartburn. Some of them may have nausea. Some of them have dyspepsia. Some of them have a belly symptom. Some of them have a, um, a, you know, a chest wall symptom. And sometimes you can elicit that with the, with the history and, and decide that they fall into the probably no GERD bracket. And of course, those patients won't improve with, with an acid suppressant. Now, uh, isolated atypical symptoms, a lot of those patients have been convinced they have reflux disease by their referring doctor. And that takes a lot of work to kind of undo that and tell them that many of these isolated sore throats and globus symptoms that don't respond to PPI actually don't respond because they don't have GERD. They have some of the mechanism for symptoms, probably have a functional mechanism, and they would do better with uh, adjunctive therapies and perhaps a neuromodulator. So those are some of the some of the elements that we encounter um, in the clinical world, um, especially at a tertiary care institution where most of the patients that we evaluate do not have GERD after testing is done. Excellent. Um, so I, I guess I'd like to, to close with, I guess, one last question for you. Just. Um, where do you what's next on the horizon in this field like wh where are we what should we be looking out for in the realm of esophageal physiologic testing 
So um, there has been interest in simplifying the diagnosis of reflux disease. And, and one of the ways in which this is being investigated is uh, to provide a means of measuring mucosal impedance, integrity of the mucosa, uh, to the endoscopist, just like uh, you have the, uh, the uh, uh, Bravo, the wireless pH capsule that can be done by the endoscopist. So take, take it, move it away from the motility lab to the, um, you know, to the endoscopist. That technology continues to be tested. Um, it, it can identify abnormal mucosal integrity from reflux, uh, but it isn't quite ready for prime time as a standalone initial test. So for best efficacy, a test like this would be something that the endoscopist would administer. Uh, if they went into the esophagus on, during endoscopy and didn't see anything, they could place this balloon, look at the impedance pattern and say, the likelihood of GERD is very low, so I don't think we need to do a pH test. Or the likelihood of GERD is a little higher than I would like, so I, let me place a, a pH capsule or something along those lines. They might even start out by doing a flip and saying, I don't see obstruction, so maybe we should look for reflux, or I see obstruction, this can't be reflux, let's go down the obstructed pathway. The symptoms alone are never never conclusive. Now, the, the other thing on the horizon that is, again, not ready for prime time is something even more basic, even more simpler, uh, looking at components of saliva to decide if they could be mixing in of stomach content in the saliva. That's the basis for the PEP test, where you look for pepsin in the saliva. Again, not ready for prime time because it doesn't always differentiate reflux disease from non-reflux conditions. But these are things that are being studied to, to make the conclusion of reflux, identification of reflux more uh, objective at an earlier stage than um, currently, because right now, you, you do start out with a PPI test in most instances. Dr. Prakash Gowali, um, this has been a fantastic discussion on esophageal physiologic testing. Um, I'm sorry we kept you too long, uh, but I just want to thank you for, for coming on the show and really delving incredibly deep uh, into, into these guidelines. Thank you so much, Juma. It, it, it was my privilege and my honor to participate in this podcast and I had a lot of fun talking to you guys. So thank you so much for having me on. Thanks for your time. Hang on to your hats, y'all. Medicine is a lifelong learning process, and this podcast is part of that process for us. While every effort is taken to ensure the accuracy of the material presented, we realize that medicine is constantly changing, not to mention that art comes along with science. In a recording conversation like this, we may make a mistake or get something wrong. We welcome comments, suggestions, or corrections. This material is presented for informational purposes only. This podcast is not intended to be, nor should it be understood or construed to be professional advice. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use this podcast as medical or health advice to treat yourself or others, whether you're a credentialed medical provider or otherwise. Listening to this podcast does not constitute medical advice, nor does it engender a physician-patient relationship. This podcast could, should not be considered as replacement for the services of a licensed, trained physician or healthcare professional. Consult your own physician for any medical issues you may be having. No author or guest of this podcast shall be held liable or responsible for any errors or omissions on this podcast or for any damage you may suffer as a result of failing to see competent medical or health advice from a professional that's familiar with your situation. Furthermore, this podcast is not to be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a, quote, standard of care, in a legal sense, or as a basis for witness testimony. The views, opinions, and beliefs expressed in this podcast are those of the commentators alone, and we make no guarantee about the accuracy of the statements or opinions put forth. 
This podcast and its contents do not necessarily state or reflect the views, opinions, and beliefs of any employer, company, medical society, or other entity with which the host or guests are affiliated, professionally, or otherwise. This podcast is HIPAA compliant. We do not accept any advertising money. Reference within the podcast to any specific commercial product, process, services by trading, trademark, manufacturer, or other does not necessarily constitute or imply its endorsement or recommendation.